0: In May 1988, one month before the Vincent family's fateful move to Whirlwind Hill Road, Wallingford welcomed a new town hall. Originally purchased by the town in 1915, the Beaux Arts Building at 45 South Main Street had housed Lyman Hall High School from 1917 to 1957 and the Robert Early Middle School from 57 to 79. Before moving into their new home, Wallingford's municipal offices had been scattered across town, housed in different buildings and annexes. The move had taken over a decade, millions of dollars, and countless renovations to complete, but the final product was beautiful. On September 17th, 1988, the hall was dedicated in a ceremony that would draw over 200 people. Reverend Richard Simmons of the United Methodist Church in Yalesville, a small, unincorporated community lying within Wallingford's limits, gave a benediction.
1: O God, in whose holy presence we live all our lives, we call upon thee to bless what we now do in dedicating this town hall. Let thy spirit direct all the events of this day. Guide the minds and hearts of all who work in every capacity in town government. May their efforts and their choices promote thy glory and the welfare of this people. Give to all who perform their civic duties in this place the spirit of wisdom, courage, sympathy, and true godliness. O God, thou hast bound us together in this bundle of life. Give us grace to understand how our lives depend upon the strength, the industry, the honesty, and the integrity of our fellow citizens. Make us mindful of their needs, grateful for their fidelity, and faithful in our responsibilities to them. We make these prayers for the good of all the people of this community and to the glory of thy name. Amen. Amen.
0: Watching the video of the dedication today, searching for answers on what happened to Doreen is like unearthing a strange time capsule. William Dickinson, then mayor for four years and now as you listen, entering his 36th year in office, features prominently joking with the men and women who celebrate around him. People laugh and cheer as they listen to speeches, dedicate flags, and sing the old Lyman Hall alma mater. Watching, you would believe that the people gathered have no reason to doubt the wisdom, courage, sympathy, and true godliness of the civil servants enlisted to protect them. They are just so happy to be part of Wallingford's bundle of life. No one's face bears any hint that they are thinking about a little girl who, just 91 days ago, vanished up the road. And I can't say whether anyone had Connie, Tracy, and Chrissy Zima on their minds. You're here to learn the story of Doreen Jane Vincent. But for a second, let me tell you another story. I need to warn you, it's a hard one to listen to. On the night of March 28, 1986, firefighters burst into the burning home of Connie and William Zima on Wallingford's Ridgetop Road. William, Connie's husband and stepfather to her two children, was out working the night shift at a Wallingford trucking company. Connie's 10-year-old son was able to escape out a bedroom window. Connie, 28 and seven months pregnant, was dead. She had been shot in her belly. Tracy, Connie's seven-year-old daughter, had been shot in the head and would die the next day in the hospital. According to Wallingford police records, mother Connie had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse for years and had vowed to never let such a thing happen to her children. But five days after the tragedy, Wallingford PD filed an affidavit as to the state medical examiner's findings, including that little Tracy had been sexually assaulted within two days of her death. On July 18th, 1986, after an investigation lasting three and a half months, the police released their own conclusion, totaling three paragraphs, that Connie, distraught about not being able to protect her daughter from the abuse she had suffered as a child, had shot Tracy, set the house on fire, and shot herself. William Zima moved away with his stepson and refused to let any family, either Connie's or his own, see the little boy. To this day, the conclusion of the Wallingford Police Department and the Farmington Medical Examiner, that of murder, arson, suicide, still holds. On the first anniversary of the tragedy, the Hartford Current published an article by Steve Burkholder entitled Year Hasn't Ended the Nightmare, the Mystery. Wallingford Police Lieutenant William E. Burka is quoted, People are welcome to their conclusions, but the facts speak for themselves, he said. No matter how you look at the case, the evidence speaks for itself. According to the article, Connie's family thought the police did, quote, a thorough job, a wonderful job. Connie's sister Sheila is there, confident that, quote, everything the police told us was from proven evidence. Connie's mother, Joan, when asked what might have driven her daughter to do what the police said she did, offered, something devastated her so bad that she did it. She had to be devastated to go to those limits. Joan and Connie's other sister, Pandora, told Burkholder they believed Connie knew that Tracy had been assaulted. We've searched our minds, Joan said, but we just can't come up with a conclusion. Meanwhile, Vera Zima had reached a conclusion of her own and it was not sitting well. Vera, mother to Connie's husband William and the children's step-grandmother, turned to an agency that has become quite familiar to me now, Connecticut's Freedom of Information Commission. There, under a state statute allowing citizens access to governmental records, subject, of course, to exemption, Vera faced off against the state medical examiner and the Wallingford Police Department. But she wasn't just looking for a file. See, Vera was adamant that seven-year-old Tracy had not been sexually assaulted, and that the PD's affidavit stating that she had been was a lie. She insisted someone killed Connie and Tracy and set fire to the house. Vera believed the Wallingford police, working with state authorities, had manufactured evidence in a cover-up, and she wanted people to know it. In Burkholder's article, you can hear the anger in Vera's voice. There was every bit of evidence that the murderers are still loose, that the police, either through ignorance or stupidity or a deliberate act, have covered up the entire investigation, she said. Vera insisted she wasn't armed with a vendetta. We're looking for the truth and only the truth, she said. We're looking for the murderer. Things didn't work out well for Vera. At her hearing at the Freedom of Information Commission, things somehow went south, and Vera was threatened with arrest and asked to leave. She would later be escorted off the state capitol grounds for protesting the police's findings. The police are on record asking to not have any contact with Vera because she's not always the easiest woman to deal with. In June 1987, the Connecticut State Legislature introduced Senate Bill 648 titled An Act Concerning Protection from Harassment Under the Freedom of Information Act. The act was drafted to allow the commission to go to court to protect itself from deliberate and repeated harassment in the form of frivolous complaints while still ensuring that serious-minded, good-intentioned people could seek records. Vera was there to testify against it. Her statement, the entirety of which I will share online, is long, and it is striking, but this part particularly struck me. Standing, begging, on the legislative floor, Vera says this. There was a triple homicide in Wallingford, Connecticut, which our city officials called a murder-suicide. It took them four months to come up with some cockamamie explanation. They claimed that a seven month pregnant woman took a handgun out of a safe, went upstairs, shot her seven year old daughter in bed, put the gun back in the safe, locked it up, took a shotgun, sprinkled gunpowder all over the cellar floor, all the way up the stairs, lit it, ran over to a sewing machine, sat down on it, positioned the shotgun, and shot herself. Well, if you can believe that, I don't know what else you could believe in. I am really almost at the end of the line. Vera was adamant that access to public records should not be limited and, I quote, "...persistence and dedication in search of justice should never be compromised." You won't be surprised to hear that I like Vera, and not just for her use of the word cockamamie. She died in 2016 with her beloved pug, Buddy, and her cat, Bobber, by her side. And that's the last real information I can find on Tracy and Connie Zima, along with baby Chrissy, who was buried with her mother. It's become a kind of ghost story, one people whisper about when they think no one's listening. You know, because I've told you that I carry around my own ghosts. But it's only in doing this work, in looking for Doreen, that I now know the Zima case. Back in the 90s when I was coming of age, Tracy, Connie, and Chrissy, just like Doreen, were not on my radar at all as my friends and I roamed Meriden and Wallingford. We'd hit friendlies, or maybe the diner or the bowling alley. And then, inevitably, while away our late night hours cruising through farmland, listening to music, and smoking clove cigarettes. Back then, just like today, urban legend held that Whirlwind Hill Road was walked by the Lady in White, a bride from the 30s who had drowned herself in the reservoir after being left at the altar. As you made your way down the dark, eerily silent road, she would appear and call to you, pleading for a ride, but when you turned your back, she was gone. Like the idiot high school students we were and the idiot college students we became, my friends and I would torture ourselves by cruising slowly down Whirlwind Hill Road with only the moon to guide us, praying to God that the lady wouldn't appear and giggling all the way. In 1999, as I began my last year at college and started to give serious thought to law school, Joe and Lucy Gouveia built their vineyard on 140 acres of farmland directly across from 1316 Whirlwind Hill on the land where Mark had once made George Bronson Farnham's workshop his own. The site features a little house built of stone and old timbers and commands a 360-degree panoramic view of Wallingford. It's the panorama that had called out to us when we'd just been kids who'd commandeered our parents' cars for the night. Today, the Gouveia website counsels as follows. Everyone comes into your life for a reason and to share a lesson. Take a moment and talk to a person who is in the shadows of the limelight because every person has his own story. Doreen, just like Connie and Tracy and Chrissy, has always been there, in the shadows, calling out for someone to get her answers, to get her justice. Because as much as 1316 might look like the house in Beetlejuice, this isn't a ghost story. It's Sticky Beak. I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Episode 3 The Lady in White. Wow. In the last episode, I told you about the narrative that Mark and Sharon told the cops when Mark finally reported Doreen missing. But their story didn't end there because Mark and Sharon kept talking. To anyone paying attention, and there weren't many in those early days, they were there to play the dutiful worried parents. The first ever article about Doreen's disappearance, authored by Ralph Tomaselli, appeared in the Record Journal on June 28th, 1988, 13 days or more since Doreen went missing. It's entitled, Police Seek Leads in Girls' Disappearance. Donna is not interviewed, but Sharon is front and center. Sharon tells Tomaselli that Doreen is a friendly, intelligent girl who considers herself independent but got bored in her new home, which felt like the middle of nowhere, and she wanted to reunite with her friends in Bridgeport. I think she thought she could take care of herself, Sharon said, but I knew she couldn't. What worries me about this is I don't think she planned this, I think she did it impulsively. Sharon is careful to let Thomaselli know that Doreen has a history of running away and that Donna has been cited for custodial interference before. Sharon pleaded with Doreen not to be afraid. Mark is there too, to tell Doreen he's not mad at her. I just want my daughter back, Mark said. Just like everything else in this case, there is more to the article when you know what you're looking for. Because in the midst of all this, Mark and Sharon were changing their story. Remember Mark's telling of how he knew Doreen was gone the night she disappeared? He said he found the front door, the one at the front of the house facing Whirlwind Hill Road, standing wide open when he crossed the street from the workshop. If you're following along with what Mark is telling you, Paul and Sarah are alone in the house, and I can't find in all the records any mention of them. When asked about the open door, Sharon would tell reporters that that wasn't possible because the front door had a double deadbolt, one on the inside of the house, and that Sharon and Mark were the only ones with the keys. But before you could blink, Sharon would recant the deadbolt detail, telling Tomaselli that she now realized Doreen was just unhappy enough to get out however she could. Looking back on it now, Sharon said, I realized she was anxious to leave. I didn't think so then, but I do now. Now, maybe some of you will disagree with me on this, but I think the deadbolt is a red herring, because I don't think Doreen ever left that house that night, or at least not willingly. And I don't think you do either, but the deadbolt has always bothered me. As far as I can tell, the deadbolt, not to mention the competing stories on the deadbolt, were never mentioned again. So why does it seem to factor as such an important detail in Mark and Sharon's story? Was the image of a front door standing wide open essential to Mark's explanation on why he knew she had run away? Because in the 80s, I watched plenty of movies where girls sneak out, run away. They stuff their beds to make it look like they're sleeping, and they leave no clear signs that they've taken off. They certainly don't flee out a door and just leave it standing open in the middle of the night. But the deadbolt still bothered me. I asked Jimmy Farnham about it. And then he had said, and I'm sorry to keep you on the phone, I just had one more question. He said that she left from the front door, which his wife later said was, Im- and you know what, when I say front door, I'm not sure if he's classifying it correctly with the way that you would, but yeah. his wife said it was impossible for her to leave by that door because it was deadbolted from the inside. Is that something that you recall being on the house? <laughs>
2: Front door dead bolted. He put a dead bolt
0: on her. We are not sure. So he says that she left through what he's calling the front door. He says he found his it. wife,
2: this is. I mean, it's the mother of the, do- of the daughter that was missing. I
0: mean, no, this is what Mark told police that when Doreen left the house, he oh, found oh, the front. Okay, yeah. yeah, he's saying that he found the front door standing wide open. Huh. But then his wife. Sharon, the one who you know or knew, yeah. she said later that that was impossible because that door was dead bolted from the inside, and you would have needed a key from the inside, which the girl didn't have, hmm. to go out the door.
2: Yeah, I have a me- I have vague memory of of that having that that like two two key, two sided keys. So you have a key on the inside and the
0: outside, but I don't. Re- it's a vague memory of okay. that that we had put that in. I think.
2: OK. Yeah, that's possible. But, um, but she could have found the key or something,
0: too. And the question still plagued me. So I spoke to true crime novelist Mike Bouchard, who's been a great resource since he got in touch with Sarah and me in the days of Faded Out. Mike has written about all kinds of cold cases, including Doreen's. He's just finishing a book now on Joan Risch, a woman who borrowed several library books about disappearances and murders before vanishing forever from Lincoln, Massachusetts on October 24th, 1961. I've spoken to Mike for hours, testing out theories and picking his brain. Here he is talking about the dead bull.
3: The problem you have here is, you know, this, with this door and this lock, there's too many conflicting stories. You know, I mean, he might he might not remember it. However, I don't believe that he w- he was a distant association of, of Mark Bench. And I believe that, you know, that they you know, that they were, they, they were together more often than one would, would think.
0: And I, I mean, agree.
3: And if you own property, I mean, I don't, it, it could be me just because I'm more detail-oriented, but if if I own property and there were changes, even small changes, I would notice that, you know? Um, and then, okay, then let's get back to the lock itself. Let's, let's forget everything we know about everything else in your memory. What would be the point of putting a lock like that on a door? That is to keep somebody in. And why, you know, that's that's not normal. That's just that's just like the phone the phone uh, being taken off the wall. If if you're you have, there's no phone in the house, and then you have a door that's locked.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay, so. That's
0: more of a containment type of pattern. I've got a lot more from Mike who's a real sticky beak, but we will get there. Meanwhile, I'm just trying to get him to listen to the podcast. Listen, I my phone is really going to die, but I wanted to say thank you and I'm going to be in touch because listen, it's called sticky beak. Sticky beak is like a a pu- uh, name for a pushy person like you and me, okay? <laughs> it's like a pushy asshole. <laughs>
3: Well, listen, my, my nickname is Asshole. Every time someone yells Asshole, I turn around. and
0: say, <laughs> yeah. All right, I'll talk yeah. to you tomorrow, okay? okay. Yep. Thank, you, Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Let's get back to the Record Journal and its second article on Doreen's disappearance, published on June 29, 1988. The headline reads, Girl Still Missing, Police Say. Mark is not there, but Sharon is back. She's trying to wish away all the bad things that may have happened to Doreen including the possibility that someone might have taken her against her will. That possibility was hard, she said, not to think about. Thomas Coran of the Wallingford Police Department was also worried, warning that, quote, Doreen's vulnerability is great. She looks older than she is. The fact that you have a young girl out there on her own speaks for itself as far as the type of danger she could encounter. Commander Paul Scannell of the State Missing Persons Unit was more pointed, telling the reporter, if they haven't gone to a friend's house and are just on the streets, they really have no way to earn money. They run into street people, who sometimes sexually abuse them or get them involved with drugs. Skinell mused that runaways often head to cities within the state, not New York City like everyone assumes, and became involved in prostitution or pornography. Coran said that tips from fast food restaurants and visits to Doreen's friends hadn't panned out, and the police were now counting on the public to help because they had just about run out of leads. So let's turn to some of those leads. As you may know, this past Wednesday, I just got a raft of, quote, dead leads from the Wallingford Police Department in response to my Freedom of Information request last May. Why it's taken them almost eight months to get these to me is another story for another day. For now, let's focus on the tips that came in in the summer of 1988 after the record journal pieces ran and Dorian's disappearance was picked up in Waterbury, where Donna lived, and Bridgeport, where Doreen became a big sister to Paul and Sarah, and used to run around in a gang of kids on Cleveland Avenue. In the summer of 1988, tips did trickle in. It's hard to know which ones might have been the product of the $5,000 reward offered by Donna's Uncle Peter. Many of these leads were, and please pardon the phrase, dead upon arrival in 1988. In 2020, it's hard not to get frustrated at mentions of sightings of Doreen in Roy's Cafe, and Caldor's, and the Levitt's Furniture Showroom, and Seaside Park. One tipster describes the girl he saw as having a Sally Field face. On June 28th, a tip came in from a stock boy working at Fizzino's garage with Sherry Knotts, a former junior at Westwoods, who in 2020 remembered what she called Doreen's bright, goofy smile from gym class. The boy filed an anonymous report that he had seen Sherry driving Doreen around in the Fizzino Company truck. Doreen, he said, was helping Sherry deliver parts to the auto shop on Choate's campus, and she looked scruffy, like she hadn't washed her hair in a month. The police checked it out. The tip led nowhere. But Sherry's name kept coming up. That same day, June 28th, a man named Jerry told a Wallingford officer that he had seen a girl sitting on a curb at the Sunoco station on East Center Street looking distressed. Jerry said he had offered to call someone for her or give her a ride, but the girl got irritated and told him to leave her alone. Scrawled across the page of type is the handwriting of an unknown officer. Ruled out, female identified as Sherry Ann Knott's. The tip attaches a photo of a beautiful but clearly annoyed Sherry. She does look a lot like Doreen might have, had Doreen ever seen 16. Others of these dead leads are starker, Painting a picture of where, had she actually escaped that house, in her denim jacket and purple Reeboks, some people imagine Doreen might have ended up. July 21st, 1988. Detective Kemp of the Waterbury Police Department reports that someone has spotted Doreen at a place he calls a hooker's hangout, with large bruises on her face. July 23rd, 1988. The state police report to Detective Peter Cameron that Doreen has been seen in a red Ford station wagon, en route with a pimp to West Haven. According to the tipster, Doreen has just spent the night with the pimp and his brother. These tips don't pan out. None of them panned out, and they were all stuffed away in a box somewhere until the cops gave them to me last week. But here's one that's harder to forget. I owe it to Doreen to present it in its entirety, and I caution you that, like the details on Connie, Tracy and Chrissy Zima it's not easy to listen to it's dated August 4, 1988 authored by an officer named Steve and addressed to detective Peter Cameron it reads as follows 1430 hours Peter detective Ragazzi from missing persons called for you on 8488 he said that on July 29, 1988 he received three phone calls at his office on Doreen Vincent and he believes it is the direct result of a reward publicized by the family The first call was from a guy who claimed he had just fucked Doreen and wouldn't give any more info. The next two calls were traced by Ragazzi to Interstate Uniform Service, 205 Garfield Street, Stratford, Connecticut. Ragazzi's information is that Vincent is working the streets in the Bridgeport area and has a pimp, unconfirmed. He suggested sending Stratford over to the uniform company. I can't even get the telephone number for the place. Billy said to type you this information sheet and let you handle it. And here, in caps, is the last sentence happy hunting happy hunting is followed by 15 exclamation marks i just need to pause for a second and make sure you know that i know i don't need to tell you how to feel about what i just read but i need to say one thing because the 15 exclamation points following happy hunting meant a lot more back in 1988 steve whoever he is wasn't working on a computer he was typing on a typewriter For all you kids out there, take it from me. He had to really lean into that exclamation point. Meanwhile, as the Wallingford Police Department worked what little they had, Donna was in the dark. For her, the days were long, hard, and marked by an uneasy relationship with the Wallingford Police. After they finally took Donna's statement on June 21st with Debbie and Carol by her side, Donna would try to make Detective Cameron an ally, but he never really gained her full trust. One day shortly after Doreen went missing, Donna, Carol, and Debbie arrived in the center of town with Doreen's sister, Stephanie, to put up missing persons posters. Detective Cameron was also there, putting up posters of his own. Today, the women tell me they made sure to steer clear of him, for reasons they still couldn't quite put their finger on. While I haven't been able to get a copy of Donna's poster, I do have a copy of Cameron's. It prominently featured Doreen's history as a runaway and advised readers that the girl was once sent to Florida in an act of custodial interference by her biological mother. The women remember that suddenly, that day in Wallingford, Mark was there too, arriving without warning and sticking his head through the open sunroof of Donna's car. What are you ladies doing here, he asked, before sauntering off. Emotions in the car erupted. Debbie remembers yelling at Donna that Mark must have done something with their daughter. Stephanie remembers that day clearly, too. Age five at the time, she now says that that was the day she understood her sister was never coming home. As the days continued to tick by, Donna became more and more desperate. She searched Waterbury and Bridgeport and even New York City. She also checked out Westwood's Christian Academy, which was closed for the year, and began to stake out the houses of Doreen's friends. On July 7, 1988, almost three weeks after Doreen went missing, Donna and her parents hired private investigator Richard Novia at a cost of $2,500. Before Donna and Debbie kicked him off the case in January 1989, Novia would collect that fee twice more for a total of $7,500, or just about $16,000 today. Novia met Donna at her house and Donna spilled her guts, telling the PI everything she'd knew. Novia's report lays it all out in a numbered list, allowing a quick look into a life certain unreliable narrators hadn't shared with the police. The list is brutal in its brusqueness. It's a quick bulleted rundown of the things Mark and Sharon hadn't wanted to share. It's 11 items long. The copy that the Wallingford Police Department has given me has redacted items seven and eight. A lot of the items on the list have to do with Mark's relationship with God. Let's start with number one. Mark Vincent was a born-again Christian fanatic, exclamation point. Two, he did not let Doreen watch TV except on Wednesdays. Four, she was not allowed to use the phone. Five, she could not wear modern clothes. They must be baggy. 11, Mark found God or Jesus in jail and was saved, and this is a front. There was more to what Donna said, but I'll save it for now. Novia's initial entry concludes, I begin my investigation 23 days after her disappearance. The PI's next stop was to Detective Cameron, and it turns out maybe Donna and her sisters had a reason for their distrust. Because according to Novia's report, Cameron told Novia with no hesitation that he believed Doreen had run away and that Donna was hiding her somewhere. Cameron wasn't alone in thinking that someone was hiding Doreen. Donna told Novia she thought Mark didn't want their daughter visiting her anymore and had squirreled Doreen away at a Christian youth center. So here we are, back at Simon Evans, the place which asked Doreen to confess any lesbian relationships or trysts with married men and to give herself to Jesus. According to Novia's notes, Simon Evans was, quote, a place where children are taken when mom and dad can't handle them. Novia confirmed Doreen had been placed there, but that she had to leave because she was, quote, difficult and would not conform. After checking it out for a few days, Novia was unable to report anything other than children leaving the main building for church. He gave directions to Detective Cameron, who promised to check it out. Novia's report never mentions the Simon Evans Center again. Novia paid Mark Vincent an unexpected visit at 1316 on July 10, 1988, when the two men played their game of telephone over Doreen's diary. And here Mark spilled another detail. In her private writings, Doreen had ranked all of her friends on their beauty, on their friendliness, on how much she loved them. And Sherry Knotts was there, the only girl ranked at 10. Doreen, she wrote, wanted to be just like Sherry. Novia's report says that the police had been able to speak to Sherry, but not track her down. So Novia caught up with her, living on South Elm Street in a rental with a girl named Jennifer and her mother. Sherry, who had been a junior at Westwoods, told Novia Doreen was an underclassman she barely knew, who was famous for making up stories. She told Novia that Doreen definitely wasn't a runaway or hiding out in Wallingford. Noticing that Sherry looked a lot like Doreen, Novia took the 16-year-old to each of the witnesses who'd claimed they'd seen Doreen in Wallingford. Each one of them had to admit they'd been wrong, that they had seen Sherry, not Doreen. Novia writes that Sherry definitely remembered Jerry, the man who had seen her at the Sunoco, and tried to give her a ride. Sherry had told Jerry to fuck off. Stymied, Novia decided to pay another surprise visit to 1316. He wanted to look at the property, including and especially Mark's workshop. Mark was calm and welcoming as he gave Novia a guided tour. The men found nothing, and Novia brought Mark up to speed on his field trips with Sherry Knott's. Mark thought that Sherry was suspicious. He told Novia he thought Doreen was likely hiding out with Sherry's brother, Mike, and maybe others, at Mike Knott's house on Knollwood Drive. Mark said he had called Mike, who had been evasive, and who, with friends, had blocked Mark from entering his house when Mark came to look for Doreen. Novia then turned his attention to Mark's landlords, Jimmy Farnham and Laura West, His entry on the two is startlingly brief, reading as follows. We're aware of septic problems at the house. Mark was doing a lot of repairs. Broken windows, bullet holes. Seem like nice people. Novia's entry concludes with the words, had bullet holes measured, but that line has been crossed out. Novia set up late night surveillance at 1316, peering in the windows. At first, not a lot happened, except for one detail the investigator found creepy. Each night, the lights would go off and Mark would putter in the basement for hours. But the night of July 11, 1988 was different. That night, at 3.15 a.m., a a small, midsize, possibly red car pulled up the hill and into the driveway of 1316. It only rested a moment before it left at a high rate of speed. Hoffman. Novia's partner, is recorded as having made, quote, a faithful but failed attempt to catch up on foot, and the investigators were not able to get the car's plates. Doreen's Aunt Debbie heard about the car and called Novia on July 12th for details, but Novia didn't have much. He writes in his notes, Debbie seemed overly curious. I got the impression she suspected or knew something about it. Underneath, he writes Debbie's phone number, which is an easy one to remember. So easy, in fact, that Debbie told me when we first met that she'd waited decades to change it, always hoping Doreen would remember it, and call. Almost 32 years later, she never has. A couple weeks later, on July 25th, Novia paid yet another visit to Mark. I don't know what they spoke about because the police have redacted the record. Scrawled under the redaction, however, are these words, written large and dark. This keeps happening. I told him to stay off the streets. If she sees him, she will run. Neither Novia nor the Wallingford police were trailing Mark on July 13th, when Mark entered the Silver City sporting arms shop in Meriden, alone, and browsed through the counters. He didn't try to buy anything, and he wouldn't have been able to even if he had wanted. As a convicted felon, he was barred from purchasing or owning firearms. But Mark Vincent wasn't about to let a detail like that bother him. On the next day, July 14th, Sharon entered Silver City, alone. She immediately walked to a counter, chose a gun without asking any questions, and applied to purchase it in her name. On July 26, after the Connecticut State Police Weapons Division approved Sharon's application, she returned to Silver City, this time with Mark in tow, to purchase the gun and register it in her name. A year later, in July 1989, when Mark was arrested for unlawful gun possession, the police wanted to know why Mark had needed the weapon less than a month after his daughter went missing. Sharon told the police that Mark, who had spent hours as a child and a young man walking and fishing and partying in the woods of nearby Huntington State Park, close to his childhood home in Bethel, was afraid of living in the middle of nowhere. Sharon also suggested Mark might want to hunt the woodchucks that were always getting into their basement. Mark had a different answer. Someone had blown off a bomb in 1316's front yard one night after Doreen went missing, and he needed, Mark said, to protect Sarah and Paul The two remaining, he called them. The two remaining that didn't run away. When the police asked him what he was going to do with a gun, Mark's answer was simple. A gun was going to do what a gun was going to do. If you've heard this story before, or think you have, you know that Huntington State Park plays a bigger role than just Mark's childhood playground. Because one night in late summer or early fall of 1988, Department of Environmental Protection Officer Paul O'Connell was patrolling the park and noticed a man and a brown Chevy truck parked right at its edge, right by Old Dodgington Road. The man, O'Connell would later report to Jason Barry of the Record Journal, had his two arms out like he was carrying a kit or something, anything, a carpet. Thinking the trespasser was throwing away trash, O'Connell called to him and that's when the man took off with whatever he was carrying into the woods. O'Connell didn't catch up with the man but stayed behind to record the truck's plate and call it into DEP headquarters. The state police were not notified, and the Wallingford Police Department would not learn of O'Connell's nighttime encounter with the man until a year later, in July 1989. I know, this detail is maddening. I have conducted an extensive interview with Paul O'Connell, but it's not on the record, at least not yet. I will keep you posted. Meanwhile, things weren't going so well for Mark at his carpenter job with Frank IML. Frank originally thought that Mark was quiet and well-mannered, but he soon learned of the trouble Mark was getting into with guys at work, borrowing 5, 10, 20 dollars here and there and not paying anyone back. More troubling, Mark frightened his coworkers. He was full of rage. Any little thing would set him off, and he wouldn't just throw fits, he would throw hammers. Frank fired Mark sometime in the late summer or early fall of 1988 and Mark took the blue car that Frank had sold him on credit and stiffed him on the payments. Frank says he drove around for weeks with the spare key to that car in his pocket, looking for Mark. He even paid a visit to Bethel to see Lori, Mark's mother. Lori was sympathetic but laughed, telling Frank he was lucky to have gotten any money out of Mark at all. After that, Frank says, he never saw Mark again. But Mark was back at 1316 where things were falling apart Or, to be more specific, getting torn down. When I first spoke to Jimmy Farnham back in January 2019, he vaguely remembered the barn where his father's workshop had stood, and that it had been torn down. But Jimmy couldn't remember when. This little detail was buried somewhere deep in my brain in May of last year. When I asked Doreen's Aunt Debbie to visit Wallingford's zoning office, on the off chance, someone had filed a permit for the concrete Mark was pouring for a patio on June 18th the day he finally reported his daughter missing. There was no such record, but there was something else. A salvage permit dated October 28th, 1988 for the 20 by 70 barn that George Bronson Farnham had once used as a garage and workshop. When I asked Laura West about the barn getting torn down, she could not remember the month or the year it happened, even when I reminded her. But she did say one thing, according to Laura, That barn was not something anyone would have wanted on their property. As October 1988 slid into November, things at 1316 continued to disintegrate. Despite her initial support of her husband's so-called penchant for woodchuck hunting, Sharon wasn't so sure. On November 22nd, she returned to Silver City Sporting Arms in Meriden, alone, to co-sign the gun back. Mark found out and he was furious. He made her go back and get it the next day. The clerk from Silver City would later testify at Mark's gun trial. He said Sharon had looked scared and had whispered that she was afraid for her husband to have a gun. Just days after that, Mark left her, alone with Paul and Sarah and no forwarding address. Sharon was distraught. She told Laura West that she begged Mark to stay, asked him what she was going to do on her own with two small children. Mark's answer? That she should go on state. Later, Sharon would confide in Donna that Mark had told her their life together as a married couple, and the religion that they had shared was a lie. And that was when the police lost sight of Mark, when Mark would vanish into thin air. Here's Jimmy Farnham.
2: Things it got super dark. His, he basically went back into his old life. of uh, We'd heard that he was a drug dealer. And he basically, you know, left his wife, and they, I think they had a baby.
0: Yeah, they had two. Yeah,
2: two babies. Yeah, and, then, and, and the daughter was his daughter by a prior marriage, I think.
0: Did you know about his criminal background?
2: Uh, I had some inkling. I don't know. He, he, had he spent time in jail? I, I, I heard he was a drug dealer. Is that right? You know,
0: I've never heard of anything about him being a drug dealer. But I know from what he's been convicted on his record, he's an arsonist. He's a burglar. He's got a lot of stuff on his rap sheet. Huh. Wow. So where did you hear drug dealer? Do you remember?
2: I just remember. went back to his former life, which I thought was drug dealing. Like, that's, that's what it was reported to me, I think, by his, his wife.
0: Sam. Oh, okay. Oh, she said he went back to his former life? Yeah,
2: that's the way she put it, I think,
0: yeah. That's so sad.
2: Yeah, yeah. Hmm.
0: Mark would evade the police until they finally found him, hiding out with and abusing a woman named Roseanne Poloni, in Wallingford, in the summer of 1989. Mark denied he'd been hiding. He claimed he had been living and working in Wallingford the whole time, watching the police watch him. But nothing could have been farther from the truth, because Mark was at his brother Brad's in California. I know, because Brad told me. We talked about him showing up in California, and I know I'm really aware that you can't get any specific dates, but you remember it was after your wife left, you said. Right. Okay, so it's. Were you at a house at that time? Yes. And you were working and you came home? Yep. And he was just there?
3: Sitting there in the driveway in a car.
0: With no warning? No warning. No, we hadn't talked in years. When he was still,
3: you know, just, just like it, when he returns to my mother's. You know, he's gone for a long time, and then he comes back, you know, with with his famous lines of bullshit that gets you believing in that there might be a difference. And uh, that was the same situation here. I hadn't talked to him in years. All the family had disowned him and this was even before the Doreen situation was obvious this was just because of his constant in and out of prison always some there's always some problem you know you never know what was going on hadn't talked to him in a long long time so yeah he was just there
0: back in connecticut richard novia didn't last much longer on the case on january 6 1989 almost seven months since Doreen had vanished donna and debbie came to his office unannounced To tell him they had hired another PI and to demand his file. In Novia's report, he's exasperated, writing that he explained to the sisters how much he and the police had done going out of their way for Doreen. I had not left one rock as it said, unturned, Novia wrote. No lead went unchecked. I told them that although I had stopped working full-time on it and invested more time than they paid for, I kept the file open and will be available at any time to continue that under the circumstances I felt I did more work than anybody and no one could play catch up easily. I would charge Donna no more money and did not want the reward money. There would be no reward money for Richard Novia and with good reason. Not only did he strike out on finding Doreen he just really doesn't strike me as a very good detective. In the unredacted portions of his report Novia writes that Mark had told him he had cleaned out the septic system of 1316 after Doreen went missing. Mark originally told Novia he had a helper, but Novia later discovered that Mark had lied. He had done the work on his own. Mr. Vincent is caught lying repeatedly, Novia writes. And remember Sherry Knott's brother, Mike? The one Mark said he thought had squirreled away Doreen in a house somewhere? Well, it turns out Sherry didn't have a brother named Mike. And Novia? never followed up on either detail. Richard Novia has not responded to my many requests for an interview, but I do have his voice for you. It's from his days as the Director of Security of Newtown High School on December 14th, 2012, back when Adam Lanza took an arsenal, killed his mother, and unleashed unspeakable horror on the children and teachers of Sandy Hook Elementary School. I have this audio because Novia was Lanza's friend.
4: I was the director of security for the Newtown Board of Education for 16 years. Uh, My connection to Adam Lonzo was, um, as the director of security, I interacted with him as I did all the students, so I knew him in that way, but I also knew him as a tech club member, and um, we interacted daily. Well, he was highly intelligent, no no question there. Um, He was a great... Uh, person to hang around with as long as you could pull them out and have conversations. This is a boy who um, always had a button shirt right to the top button um, with his little bag. um, Would would avoid uh, verbal or physical contact with just about anyone if he could. Adam had mental disorders um, that's pretty much out there already. Um, Asperger's syndrome was one we knew about. I knew his mother uh, through the school, but it extended beyond that. Um, she was a wonderful person. She was an excellent parent. This is more of a person you would have had to watch and care for and protect him from the other students.
0: After all the things I've shared with you here about Mark Vincent and Richard Novia, and Peter Cameron, and Sherry Knotts, I want to end with Sharon. I told you last time, Sharon never really gave up any real ghosts. Unable to pay her rent to Laura and Jimmy, she would take Sarah and Paul and move out of the house she had shared for a brief time with Mark and with Doreen. Jimmy and Laura would eventually move back in, alternating between Wallingford and New Haven before selling the house in a private sale in 2014. But Sharon wasn't done with 1316 because after she was forced to leave the place she might have hoped to start a new life in, after bringing her children into its yard while Doreen screamed, after supporting a lie about its deadbolted door, and after helping her husband illegally buy a gun to keep bombs away, Sharon stopped by one day. Laura was surprised to see her. Sharon wanted Laura to know that she had received a lot of support through her church and that she was doing really well. Sharon, Laura said, looked a lot happier. Sharon didn't mention Doreen. After over a year poring over this case, I still don't know what to make of Sharon. A lot of people think that Sharon was scared, that Mark had bullied and manipulated her the way he tried to do to Donna and Frank IML and the men at Frank's Paint and even his own brother, Brad. I think so, too. And I have another story. It's about Raspberries, Sharon, and a long walk she took down Whirlwind Hill Road In the days after her stepdaughter disappeared forever, I wondered to myself was she thinking about Doreen? Did she see the lady in white? Maybe, because we all carry around our own ghosts.